I'm guessing everyone's noticed that we live in inflationary times. And it's been widely reported that the Federal Reserve's policies, you know, cranking up interest rates to tamp down inflation was one of the factors that triggered the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and all the anxieties about other banks. So I thought this would be a good time to take a step back and talk about the other ways to control inflation. It's obvious, but let's just state the obvious. Inflation is bad. Inflation not only robs citizens of the value of their earnings and savings, but if uncontained, uh, out-of-control inflation can ruin and, ha- in fact, has ruined entire nations. So no one doubts now that this particular inflation cycle we're living in is a systemic problem and not, you know, air quotes, transitory. And even though inflation is down a little bit now from last summer's peak, it's still at pretty superheated levels that we haven't seen since the uh, days of President Carter's infamous stagflation and uh, malaise. In fact, because it, we've been in such low inflation for so long, as a sort of demographic fact, more than one half of all of Americans alive today have never worked or been around, planned during a time of high inflation. So the new normal is really new to an awful lot of people. So the Fed is trying to conquer inflation by ratcheting up interest rates. Well, ratcheting up interest rates has its own consequences. For one thing, again, in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank uh, and other bank challenges, cranking up interest rates means that the Treasury notes and bonds that banks hold at the older low interest rates become devalued. They're worth less. Not worthless, but worth less. That has consequences. And there's another consequence to rate hikes, of course. It's an open secret that, uh, I guess, reduced to simplest terms, the Federal Reserve is trying to conquer inflation by putting people out of work and depressing future wages. I mean, that's not the way they're saying it. They, They put it a little more elliptically. You know, raising interest rates is intended to, quote, cool down the economy and rebalance the misalignment between too many jobs available for the supply of people willing and able to work. So you can see why they're doing that. And it follows from, it logically follows from the very definition of inflation. You know, inflation means, or inflation is, as economists define it, it's caused when the money supply in an economy grows faster than the economy's ability to produce goods and services that people are using the money to buy. So when people have too much money or their wages increase too quickly, and I don't know about you, but I've never met anybody who thinks they have too much money. But anyway, when when people have too much money because their wages are going up too fast or the government prints too much money, policies that induce unemployment make it easier for companies to compete. They could compete for employees without having to pay bigger wages. And bigger wages, of course, cause what economists also call wage price inflation. And, and the bonus of increasing unemployment, and I put bonus in air quotes, is that it also relieves inflationary demand pressure because there's more people who are unemployed means there's more people uh, who are not demanding 
more goods and services because they don't have enough money. So that's that's the logic. You'd have to ask, is that is that the best we can do? Is that the only way we can control inflation? Is what you would call on the can we, is that the only way we can manage the imbalance of too much demand without supply responding fast enough? And we put this inversely. An economy that meets or oversupplies the consumer demand for goods and services is by definition disinflationary because it drives competition and lowers prices. In fact, the Congressional Research Service did us a favor, a couple of economists there, a very recently published uh, an analysis of the state of play. And they, it's a very honest sort of snapshot, uh, not only of where we are in, in the in the country with respect to inflation, but also what, what the solutions are. And they, they wrote that uh, the supply side solutions, that is doing things that would result in an overproduction, if you like, of goods and services, which is disinflationary, supply side solutions are, and I quote them, time-consuming to implement. You could say, of course they are. But turns out that uh, what I guess you could call the thumbscrew solution of rate hikes to induce recessions, those are also time-consuming. In fact, the same the same uh, economists in the Congressional Research Service paper wrote, and I'll, I'll quote, they said that it can take 18 months to several years for the effects of Fed policy to feed through to tamping down inflation. They didn't use the word tamping down, control inflation. So both take a long time. It, it's not easy to control inflation, whether you're trying to do it on the demand or the supply side. Demand side is the Fed's policy of cranking up interest rates. Supply side is finding a way to make sure that there's more goods and services than the market needs or wants or demands. The real reason that we're using and that the Fed is using, or government broadly, is using the tool of raising interest rates to control inflation rather than wealth creating supply side options distills to a very simple fact. The Fed controls interest rates. It's essentially what they control. They can print money, but they control interest rates. They control, that's what they control. It's Congress that controls the levers that determine whether the supply side really works well. Congress controls the taxes and regulations, which beyond obviously when they're onerous, depress business expansion, which means that's inflationary. And Congress, of course, also controls spending, which when that gets run away, feeds inflation. So we live at a time Again, this again is obvious for any of us that are following this issue. When Congress has plowed full speed ahead on increasing both spending and increasing business constraints, that's the regulatory and tax environments. There's no better evidence that that's the case. That these this this is the characteristic of the of the dynamic in play right now. We have the Fed fighting inflation and the Congress essentially fueling inflation. The acknowledgement of that was on display in, in uh, congressional hearings, Senate hearings, just recently. In, in the first week of March, uh, the Senate had the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Powell uh, as a witness. He goes there regularly to talk about these issues. And Senator Elizabeth Warren, and I want to quote this exactly, 
Senator Warren said to the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell, I quote, your tool, raising interest rates, is designed to slow the economy and throw people out of work. So far, you haven't tipped the economy into recession, but you haven't brought inflation under control either. Maybe the reason for that is other things are keeping prices high, things you can't fix with high interest rates, end quote. Wow. Rarely have truer words been uh, emerged from a congressional hearing. I mean, it's other things are creating a problem. So Chairman Powell's response, by the way, and I'll quote him, as he said, we're taking the only measures we have to bring down inflation. So, and end quote. So what he said, we have, by that he meant the Federal Reserve has. The Federal Reserve's tool is interest rates. The Congress's tools are different. So the Fed sort of faces headwinds in this inflationary period. The inflations that we're going to face in the coming uh, months and years are going to be determined mainly by those other things. And some of those other things, of course, are beyond Congress's control. You know, the disruptions caused the supply chains from the lockdowns and the war in Ukraine, which also caused supply chain realignments and disruptions. But those were, in fact, transitory, and those have been largely settled out. We've seen that in the data. But inflation is still at a four-decade high. Those things settled out. We're still a four-decade high inflation. What's going on? Well, the answer is it must be in the other things. So what are those other things? Or, or put differently, what could you do? What could governments do? What could be done to stimulate a disinflationary increase in the supply of goods and services? Because that would help contain inflation. And you want the answer? Well, it's not complicated. I mean, put in a very, very simple, very sim simple, not simplistic, but simple terms, the features of an economy that lead to an abundance of goods and services distills to just three things, cheap energy, stable and efficient regulations, and access to risk capital. Okay. It's, none of these things are where the country is trending right now, given congressional uh, and federal policies and many state policies. So, but let me let me talk about each of these three features, about where we are right now with respect to each each of these three features, because that will say a lot about where we could be, and where we should be, to keep inflation under control in the twenty twenties. Start with energy, because nothing gets built, nothing gets operated, nothing happens without without energy. When energy is cheap, it's readily available, it's disinflationary. It sits in the twilight. Of concerns, if you like. People take it for granted, governments, citizens, businesses. And until a decade ago, the, the United States, much of the world experienced a, a steady decline in the share of the total economy that was devoted to paying for fuel and food. Food is food costs are directly and deeply energy dependent. But for the last decade, the share of our economy that's had to be devoted to fuel and food has been steadily rising. It's gone through transitory peaks with supply chain disruptions um, from the lockdowns in Ukraine, but those transitory peaks are gone, but we're still trending up. Governments know that energy prices are inflationary and politicians understand it. In fact, this is something that I think pol all politicians on both sides of the aisle understand reflexively. In fact, the fact that they know that, I mean, let's do as an aside, it's worth thinking about this, worth a brief digression. 
the fact that they know that is is evidenced by behaviors of our government when things threaten the cost of energy, especially the cost of gasoline or oil, because that particular part of the energy infrastructure is immediately obvious to citizens who are also voters that it's inflationary. The impacts are immediate, immediately felt, immediately seen. They're not hidden. There's no delays. There's no mystery to the inflationary impact of high cost oil. So think about what happened in 2021 with the uh, cyber attack on the, um, the back office of the Colonial Pipeline, which is you know, a year and a half ago, already lost in the midst of history. But just think about what happened. Uh, the Biden administration, uh, despite its you know self-professed, we'll call it hostility to the oil, in- oil industry, moved extremely quickly to issue temporary exemptions to regulations that constrained truck deliveries of uh, fuel to the East Coast. They did not want the inflationary impact uh, even for a short time from high gasoline and diesel prices. Think about what this administration has done. And again, I'm picking this administration because this is an administration that has made it clear uh, that there's, we'll call it some degree of hostility to to the uh, oil industry, at least in the sense, we'll say philosophically, that we don't, we, we don't need it. We shouldn't have it. We should avoid it. Anyway, think about as exhibit B, before, before the Ukrainian war, uh, start started the administration authorized the sale of what is historically an unprecedented quantity of oil. Uh, it became an unprecedented quantity of oil sold from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the SBR, the SPRO, uh, was created by Congress for strategic, not economic reasons, although presidents have used it to a minor extent for economic reasons over history, and they're allowed to. But this sale was at levels that are unprecedented in the more than nearly half century history of the strategic reserve. It was done to tamp down and control the rising price of oil and gasoline. Uh, it was done because it it had it did have it, it had an effect. The administration is correct, adding about a million barrels per day of sales to the world market uh, is disinflationary, and that's why why they did it. Uh, the inflationary actions, such as canceling the now infamous Keystone Pipeline from Canada, they don't have the same overnight economic transparency. It takes time for the impact of that to be visible and seen as being inflationary in terms of constraining the uh, economic uh, efficiency, if you like, of oil markets, especially in North America. So the point of this is that governments understand they they, they do. In fact, uh, one other one other example where it's, it it bears noting in terms of the long cycle and immediate impact of energy prices uh, on inflation is in Europe right now. I mean, Europe is having is struggling with uh, realigning its energy systems to deal with delinking from Russia. One effect of that has been to cause a systemic, a probably sustained decrease in energy costs for European industries. That has led directly to some very, uh, in, not only in, inflationary, consequences in terms of higher costs of goods produced by uh, European industries. And keep in mind, the European continent, broadly speaking, is roughly co-equal to the United States, which means inflation there causes inflation here, broadly speaking. So BASF, one of the world's biggest chemical companies, probably Europe's biggest chemical company in Germany, has uh, announced that it's a Delinking from Europe, winding, winding its businesses down there, move, moving out. It can't be competitive because of 
in the words of their CEO, uh, high costs for inputs. Well, the inputs are energy. Chemical industry's biggest input is the cost of energy. And the CEO also said in a pretty candid public statement, which you can find online, uh, that it, Europe's um, competitiveness, and I'll, in his words, are increasingly suffering from overregulation and slow and bureaucratic permitting. permitting. Okay. So energy prices are inflationary. Uh, regulatory constraints are inflationary. Uh, so let's turn to regulations then. The second in my triad. Remember the, the three things that are inflationary or disinflationary, depending on which direction they're going, are cheap energy, uh, stable, and uh, we'll call reasonable regulations, and of course, access to capital. So what's happening now on the regulatory uh, front? Well, we're... We really are in a kind of regulatory sclerosis in the in the Western world, in the, in Europe and the United States. In fact, I'll, I'll, but as Exhibit A for the the fact that we are there and its consequences, let's take let's take a look at a different industry. Let's not talk about the energy industry. Let's talk about the semiconductor industry, which is also in the news a lot lately, and not just because of the supply chain challenges that we had during the dis- lockdown disruptions. Uh, constraining the ability to manufacture cars, which are very chips dependent, uh, but also because of the um, concerns about China's role in supplying many of the, um, the the semiconductor chips that are used in the West in our current tensions with China. And as a result of that, Congress passed the CHIPS Act, which is to reshore and provide subsidies for building those manufacturing plants that are called FABs in the United States. I like fabs, as I've talked about in in an earlier podcast, like last year when the CHIPS Act came out. My first job was at a semiconductor fab. I'm sort of hardwired to like that industry, (laughs) like a duckling imprinted at birth. It's a tremendous industry, a very important one. I'm pleased that philosophically we're trying to reshore it. But here's the problem. When Congress passed the CHIPS Act, uh, they did nothing about the bureaucratic challenges, the regulatory sclerosis that exists. They, They held up lots of subsidies. But not only did Congress not fix the challenges to building multi-billion dollar manufacturing plants, they actually added more challenges hidden hidden in the uh, carrots of free money from the government uh, as the semiconductor industry is discovering are all kinds of uh, bureaucratic compliance surprises, including hooks into how businesses can hire and fire people. Federal handouts are not going to come without... uh, more more compliance, more bureaucratic regulatory impediments. Uh, How do I know that? Well, I, I know that because I read part of the bill, but more importantly, let's just take a look at what the, the Semiconductor Industry Trade Association said once this passed and everybody started reading it. They said that the the new the new money, the reshoring of manufacturing of semiconductors in America, uh, it comes with quote burdensome reviews, and the industry is calling for the government, the government, meaning Congress, to quote streamline and expedite the approval and regulatory processes. <laughs> Good luck with that. I mean, <laughs> there was a you know there was a headline uh, in the United Kingdom's in the UK re- the newspaper, the Register, which I thought really framed the challenge perfectly. You got to love headline writers. The headline headline about. Uh, this issue, the semiconductor industry in America, uh, looking for streamlining so they could actually get these plants built for which the handouts were going to be promised. The headline said, semiconductor industry, colon, 
to hell with the environment. Start building fabs already. This sort of encapsulate, encapsulates the uh, the state of the state of the challenge uh, politically uh, in terms of expediting permitting to get things built. And, and by the way, this also applies to the hundreds of billions of dollars that were allocated in the Infrastructure Act. Congress uh, teed up a lot of inflationary money to build and expand, repair infrastructure. Good thing. One can certainly argue, especially for basic infrastructure, except it also has lots of hooks in it that create more regulatory compliance challenge. And nothing was done by Congress for those for that spending to uh, do anything at all to make the regulatory compliance, to speed up the ability to literally deploy the money to build things. The only thing that they could speed up was deploying money in, in the soft sense. So, you know, backstopping pension funds, those kinds of uh, those kinds of spending. So, I mean, you can imagine a headline for any of the industries that uh, that are now going to be, whether energy industry, infrastructure industry, semiconductor industry, battery industries, EV industry, all of them that are in line at the federal trough to try to, you know, slop up some of the, the billions and billions of money. They're all going to have uh, the same challenge that both BASF has pointed out and, of course, our semiconductor industry about just the bureaucratic delays and challenges and actually building things in America again at scale, building big things, big, big, big manufacturing, opening mines, opening refining refineries that can make the chemicals to make the batteries, to make the, the, the semiconductor chips that makes the smart driving work and all the rest. So this is, uh, this is inflationary. I mean, you've got, again, you've got uh, an oversupply of money chasing an undersupply of a cap capability to do anything. That is the very definition of inflation. In fact, Chairman Powell uh, at a different speech earlier this year, not, not the Senate hearings I was talking about, he talked specifically about the inflationary role of input commodities and the challenges that uh, the United States is facing. The chairman is very aware that the other things that Senator Warren pointed out are a problem. And we have commodity inflation as well as structural inflation in play because of uh, federal policies, because of what Congress has done. So, which brings us to the third and the triad of what is wrong and what needs to be fixed. And in, ter in terms of what it will take to have a structural environment that's disinflationary, and that's access to capital. Um, one of the features uh, of the American system for most of history, I think arguably all of history since the creation of this country, has been the ability for entrepreneurs, innovators, and business to get access to what we would call risk capital, you know, loans and investments, financing from one of the most uh, uh, dynamic and uh, almost wild west at times, obviously, financial and uh, banking system uh, in the world, which has been a feature, not a bug. It has problems, right? You can end up with bank failures in a very dynamic environment. You can have hedge fund failures. You can have, you can have financial failures of all kinds. Uh, and we have a central bank for a whole set of reasons that reach back into history, but let's just stick with the state of play we have now, not where we were, the creation of the Federal Reserve uh, about a century ago, but rather the the net effect of the Silicon Valley Bank failure and the other failures it's triggering or threatening is inevitably going to lead to both congressional and federal agency reviews 
and then tinkering with the financial regulations of the country. You could argue some of that tinkering will be appropriate and necessary. You could, could argue that. Many are arguing that none of it's necessary. In fact, the there is now in the when the crisis period seems to have passed, some clear eye talking about whether or not Silicon Valley Bank should be should have been allowed to, to fail or not. Doesn't matter. That debate doesn't change this fact. The inherent lack of visibility now for what comes next in terms of tinkerings, how much more tinkering there will be with financial regulations, what that tinkering will actually look like, no one really knows because that phase of dealing with the Silicon Valley Bank crisis and its collateral damage, we're now in early stages of the phase of regulators and, and Congress itself looking at it and thinking about what they should tighten up, what they should provide more oversight for. And that level of uncertainty there chills capital, chills the eagerness, willingness, or ability of capital markets to really function. And since the hallmark of America's long-run expansion in technology leadership, its business leadership, has come in a significant measure because of the willingness of financial businesses to loan the creation and wealth creating businesses money. So, I mean, if you think about the dynamic, you have to have two classes of risk occurring simultaneously, risk tolerance taking place simultaneously. Businesses willing to take risks on new technologies, new ventures, and financial system willing to take risk on those businesses. If both those features are not in place, you slow innovation, you slow growth, you slow wealth creation, you also fuel inflation because if there is whatever wealth creation is going on, if we constrain supply by definition, again, back to, back to what inflation is, you create an inflationary pressure. So this is this is not so good. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about whether or not Silicon Valley Bank was a unique case um, or systemic in the language that's being thrown around a systemic risk, calling a systemic uh, potential systemic failures among other other banks. Uh, it's pretty obvious that Silicon Valley Bank was different. Not that it wasn't California per se. I mean, uh, there's lots of headlines about how it was the climate bank. That is, it's the one of the top lenders in the country to renewable energy projects. It had 1,500 clean tech clients. It was the, the go-to bank of the very heavily Democrat-leaning uh, wealth of California. All, the, all that is indisputably the case, but that doesn't change the fact that if that particular bank had failed, it might have caused risk and concerns in other banks, all that, all that, you could take the politics out of it and just take the facts that it was a very big bank and it caused a lot of concerns about its failure, okay? Whether it, had, whether it had actually failed or been rescued doesn't change the fact that it created uncertainty in the financial system. That uncertainty echoes into chilling of capital. So what we have now is a challenge that Congress needs to move and the regulators need to move quickly to reestablish certainty and visibility on what comes next. It almost doesn't matter what comes next. What you need to do is have visibility on what comes next. That's the key. The The idea that Congress will move quickly is, is probably probably hopeless right now, at least in the short term. And the idea that the regulators move quickly, probably in the, in the current short term, is, is probably an unrealistic expectation. So... The bottom line is we're in we're in a situation now where we essentially have all three forces 
that are inflationary, pushing the country towards uh, sustaining the current or roughly current level of inflation. It's, I mean, frankly, it couldn't come at a, at a worse time, in the, not just because it's inflation is inherently bad, but chilling capital formation is coming at a time, as I've devoted previous podcasts to, and as I have said before, the sort of the animating feature of my book, the underlying dynamic of new technology opportunities is uniquely uh, fecund right now, if you like. There's far more innovation opportunity now than there has been really at any time in nearly a century. But that will take risk capital, whether whether it's the expanded use of artificial intelligence, not the parlor tricks of chat GPT, but broadly speaking, the use of software to enhance business, business efficiency and make up for the shortage of labor. Same is true for robots. As we've talked about in previous podcasts, robots uh, will amplify labor, will increase productivity, are disinflationary. But they're risky to deploy in early phases because they're new, which comes back to needing for risk capital. So constraining risk capital at this time is inflationary. It doesn't help us get to disinflationary times. Uh, Creating more regulatory barriers right now is inflationary. In fact, slows the things that we think are rescues, which is bringing bringing more manufacturing to America and oversupplying the world. One of the things about reshoring, by the way, is means that the world by definition will be oversupplied in the products that we reshore because the businesses elsewhere are not going to just shut down because we reshore. They're not going to all say, oh, I'm sorry, you're building a chip fab, so we're not going to build one here in China or South Korea or in Taiwan. That's not what happens. What we do through these government policies is unintentionally or intentionally is lead to oversupplying and therefore price competition, in which is disinflationary. So those, those features would tell you what we should do next, what we need to have Congress and the regulatory agencies do to help the Fed tamp down inflation is to take, take the brakes off the industries that produce the energy that most of the world uses, which is oil, gas, and coal, especially oil and gas. We want lots of energy produced so it can be disinflationary. You want prices to go down. If you're in the producing side of it, you don't want that, but I'm just talking about it from an economics perspective. We need to have more stable, more stability, but also clarity and acceleration in the regulatory environment. And we need to add some degree of stability and confidence in the in the risk, uh, risk features of the financial system. All these are big tasks. Uh, so let me let me end with being an optimist. This might this is a pessimistic picture of where we sit right now. Being an optimist doesn't mean that you're optimistic about the next few months. In this case, the next year or two, but the direction of where the country can go and where I think it probably will go, because the features I've just described are, aside from the social issues uh, that are part of the political campaigns, the financial features of the next political cycle that we'll be in are extremely important. Remember the old adage, um, the phrase that was made famous during Bill Clinton's first run for the presidency, you know, that those, the phrase that was famously and infamously created by his, his advisor, James Carville, which was, it's the economy, stupid. That was the, apparently the sign they had over their campaign headquarters. And I would say that's, that's going to be front and center. Uh, in our next cycle, the next couple of years, which will be good because not just not setting aside who who could or should win, if if both parties decide to make that feature uh, 
of the next political cycle, the center of the debate of how we reignite our economy, this would be a good thing, Uh, especially if it results, if it falls with the result of getting us to a place where we take some inflationary pressure off all three features of where we're sitting with the current state of play in the United States, because the opportunities are enormous. Opportunities for growth and wealth creation that's disinflationary are utterly enormous. That's why I'm optimistic. <laughs> so, but, but I'm cautiously optimistic until we see what happens uh, in the next uh, in the next couple of years as uh, as these uh, these forces play out. So, that's it for this episode. I will say again at the end, as all podcasters say, give us rankings, ratings, give us good ones, please. If you got complaints, send me an email. You know, post it, text it, LinkedIn. Twitter, let me know. I'll, I will again return to you know uh, answers to questions and objections at some point in the future. I've already done one of those, so I'm not going to do it right now. Uh, I think I think I'll, I'll I'll leave you with this with this thought. I I think the uh, the state of play with respect to inflation is is so serious it's so important, and all politicians really do understand that. I think we have a decent shot at uh, at least some sensible policies emerging that will uh, result in disinflationary pressures in the uh, in the coming uh, in the coming year or so with that signing off uh mark mills is the last optimist mm-hmm.